0: Good morning, Life Church. It is great to see you all this morning. Um, as Pastor James mentioned, we have some connection to Salisbury. My wife was born here, lived here until she was about five, and then moved all around the place until we ended up landing our families separately in Concord about the same time uh, we met in high school. But um, it's just an honor to be here with you today. I've gotten to meet some of you so far. I hope I get to meet many more of you uh, before me and my family leave here later on today, and I just want you to know I've heard some wonderful things about you all from a distance. Actually, the first people I got to know that are members of Life Church were Mark and Catherine Etheridge. And uh, my wife, Christina, met Mark and Catherine at a church planting cohort, kind of a training with the state convention of North Carolina last August. So we've known them for a while and have gotten to watch uh, their transition here and just to hear the blessing that you all have been to them and to their family. Uh, And then just a few months ago, I got to meet Pastor James as he was sharing with you, and he's already been a huge encouragement to me, Uh, just getting to learn from him, getting to talk with him, develop a friendship, and even just hear how he and the elders here uh, lead you and how they love you. Uh, So just know that you are a beloved church, heard incredible things about you, and it's great to see you in the flesh today. Uh, But today we find ourselves in the second to last message in this series on the book of James. So if you would, open to James chapter 5. And uh, Pastor James, not ancient James, the author, but Pastor James was wise to set this up this way because if I make a mess of things today, he's still got one more week to clean it up. Just kidding, I hope. Uh, But in this series, I know that you've gotten an enlightening glimpse into what real faith looks like. The big message that ancient James has had for his first century readers, and of course for us, his 21st century hearers, is that real faith leads to action. You've seen that a person with real faith will seek God's wisdom in all of their life. There'll be a person that rejects favoritism, that cares for the vulnerable, that humbles themselves before God. A person with real faith will make sure that their deeds and their words line up with their profession of faith, because with real faith, right, we don't just hear the word, but we actually are doers of the word. Now, as you've seen throughout this series, this doesn't in any way contradict the good news of salvation by faith alone totally through grace but james does show us that real faith because of god's grace at work in our lives just fundamentally transforms the way that we think the way that we speak and the way that we act and this has been the message of this entire series so last week you saw in james 5 verses 7 through 12 that real faith teaches us to wait for the lord and to endure hardship faithfully and that thread just continues throughout this message this week as James goes on to tell us what to do while we wait. I think James's goal in this passage is to teach us to pray. And not merely to pray, but to pray effectively. Right, don't you want to know how to pray well? How to pray rightly? How to pray powerfully and effectively? As you wait through the joys and the trials of this life, that's exactly what we're going to learn here today. So let's turn to the word, James 5, starting in verse 13 and see God's instruction through James's writing. Beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. If you've seen or read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia, you might remember this scene where this guy called Father Christmas gives gifts to the main characters, Peter, Susan, and Lucy. If you haven't seen this, just know that Father Christmas is basically this weird mixture of Santa Claus and Dumbledore. Uh, But the main characters in this scene, they're being prepared for this climactic battle, good against evil. So Father Christmas shows up and he gives them tools for warfare. He gives them weapons for the battle. So Peter, the oldest, receives this magnificent sword and shield. Susan, who's the the next oldest, she receives this bow and arrow. And then uh, Lucy, who's actually the youngest, receives this dagger and healing potion. All amazing tools for warfare, right? Things that they're going to need. Now, Susan also receives another gift that seems much less impressive, at least at first glance. Rather unassuming, this small ivory horn, Compared to the swords and the the bow and arrow and the shield and the dagger and the healing potion, this ivory horn might seem kind of pointless for battle. Maybe even seems inconsequential, something easy to overlook. But Susan, when she receives this, she's assured by Father Christmas that if you blow this horn, help will always come. Though the horn might have seemed inconsequential, it actually proves itself throughout all the Narnia books, to be one of the most effective tools, the most effective tide-turning weapons that they have at their disposal because when they use the horn, help always comes. Now, like Susan's horn, prayer in the Christian life is one of our most effective weapons that we have. God has given prayer to us actually as a tool, as a weapon for our waiting, if you will. But it's easy to overlook, isn't it? It's easy to ask that question. Do my prayers actually make a difference? Is this actually accomplishing anything? Is there any power in my prayer? But as we read in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. So friends, if we really believe that truth in James 5.16, and if we want to see that at work in our lives, we have to actually wield the weapon of prayer, and we have to learn to wield it effectively. So as we go and read this passage and And look through it. We're going to see that prayer is effective. That help will always come if we wield this weapon. And we're going to see four ways to wield the weapon of prayer effectively. Now the first is this. We pray effectively when we pray in all circumstances. We pray effectively when we pray in all circumstances. Let's look again at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. So James here gives us two ends of the spectrum of the Christian life, right? For the person who is suffering, what do they do? They pray. For the person who's cheerful, who has good circumstance, what do they do? They praise. They bring their joy to the Lord. So whether it's suffering or whether it's joy, we bring it to the Lord. These are not really just two ends of the spectrum, but they're two sides of the same coin of the Christian life. This is what the life of prayer looks like. No matter what we're going through, we're bringing it to the Lord. We pray in all circumstances. I don't know about you, but my natural disposition is primarily to go to the Lord in prayer when I need something, right? When things aren't working quite right, when I start to realize that I need God's help, whether I'm, I'm suffering or hurting or something is lacking, I'm often much quicker to go to the Lord in prayer when I sense that need. When I'm comfortable, though, things are kind of floating along just fine. Things are are clicking and going just right, my temptation is to relax and slip a bit more into prayerlessness. Not total prayerlessness, of course. You're like, this guy's planning a church. I hope he prays. Yeah, but I certainly have this temptation to pray a lot less. You know, when I I don't sense my need, I don't sense my need for prayer. There's this feeling sometimes I don't need to pray when I don't need help. Now, church planting in itself has been one of those challenges in life that God has mercifully used to teach me to pray quite a bit more. Everything when you're church planting feels so fragile, everything, every aspect of it, you think this thing could just fall apart tomorrow. I'm constantly seeing what I need. I'm regularly sensing that I can't do this on my own. I'm aware of my own powerlessness. Maybe you have some challenging circumstances like that in your life. Maybe it goes beyond that. Maybe there is some actual suffering that's happening in your life, some pain that you're going through, and hopefully it's causing you to want to pray more. This is why you'll see in certain people's lives, people that maybe never think about God, never have really any kind of relationship with him, but when suffering begins to break out in their life, things start going wrong, they begin to actually pray and they begin to seek prayer wherever they can get it. Mercifully, God will use the challenges and the pain and the suffering in our lives to teach us to pray. And he draws us to himself for help. So accordingly, James here, he says, if you're suffering, you should pray. Do that. But the question is, can we really say that we go to him at all times, in all circumstances? When you're getting along fine and you're feeling joyful about life, is your first inclination still to pray and to bring praise to the Lord? Or is your temptation to turn on the spiritual cruise control and, and take your mind off of the Lord? James wants us to see here that even when things are going great and your heart is lifted up, you still ought to be taking everything to the Lord in prayer. And this concept is probably what helps us make sense of some of Paul's commands that he gives us in other letters of the New Testament. He says in 1 Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. He says in Ephesians chapter 6, to pray in the Spirit at all times with all kinds of prayers and requests. But if our temptation is to only pray when we really feel like we need something, then much of our life will be prayerless, will be lacking in prayer. But if we find a way to take every circumstance, everything we walk through in life, good or bad, and turn that to prayer, we take our suffering and turn it to the Lord, we take our joy and we turn it to the Lord, that's how we can fulfill that command to pray at all times. That's how we can begin learning to wield this weapon of prayer effectively. Prayers of praise when your heart is joyful are just as powerful and just as important as prayers of petition when your heart is downcast, when your circumstance is not what you want it to be. At the same time, we have to be mindful that our challenging circumstances, even suffering, though I said before that often they draw us to pray, they also can push us away from prayer, right? Right? There's many people who finally come to God in prayer when suffering breaks out in their life, but there's also many people who suffering begins to break out and they say, God could not be good. I'm walking away from him. There, there couldn't even be a God if I'm going through this thing. Suffering can actually cause us to harden our hearts against the Lord, but James tells us, in your suffering, pray. Don't neglect God, the only source of spiritual help. So, Life Church, I simply want to encourage you to make a conscious effort this week to pray in all circumstances. Is your heart downcast? Are you suffering? Are you walking through challenges? Don't grumble about it. Don't don't harden your heart against the Lord, but as you endure, turn your hardship into prayer. On the other hand, is your heart joyful? Are you walking through this season of well-being? Don't hit cruise control until the next bump in the road, but turn your joy into praise. Come to God, the very reason for your well-being, and in this way, you'll make way for effective prayer in your life because you're truly learning to wield your most powerful weapon in all circumstances. But just as prayer shouldn't only happen in certain circumstances, it also shouldn't only happen alone because this is our second thing. We pray effectively when we pray with the church. We pray effectively when we pray with the church. Let's see this in verses 14 through 16. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. Now, From here forward, we've got quite a bit to unpack. James, our author, he turns his attention from these broad highs and lows of, of good and bad things in our lives, of joy and suffering, to the specific circumstance of illness among believers. And of course, what does he direct them to do? He directs them to pray, to use their greatest weapon and to ask the Lord for healing. So we're going to be talking about that a lot over the next few minutes, but I want to explain how I'm going to approach the rest of this, just so that you can track with me easily. Of course, this topic of physical healing comes up here, but I think the bigger point of this entire passage is effective prayer amidst the many circumstances of life. The occasion or the example that James seems to give here is that there's illness that's fallen among the people that uh, are reading, and he's telling them how they ought to pray in that circumstance. So what I'm going to do over these next few points is begin by just focusing on the big picture principles that we can gather from our passage, how to pray effectively no matter your circumstance. But I do want to come back to the application of praying for healing. So with that said, let's dive in for these principles first. I said a moment ago that we pray effectively by praying with the church. Notice verse 14. Who does he say to pray with? He says, pray with the elders. It's just another word for the pastors of the church. And then in verse 16, who does he say to pray with? He says, pray with one another. It's fellow members of the church, those that are seated around you right now. Whether it's the leaders of the church or your brothers and sisters within the church, prayer is no merely private act. It is immensely communal. In many ways, it's most powerful. Prayer is most effective in our lives when it happens together in the context of the family of faith. You see, if we try to go it alone in prayer, we miss out on much of the beauty and much of the effectiveness of prayer in the way that God has designed it. Notice James says to the sick person in need of healing, verse 14, in essence, he says, don't pray alone, call the elders of the church. He says to the person confessing sin in verse 16, Don't do this alone. Confess to your brothers and sisters in Christ and pray with one another. And if we take what James writes at face value, it seems that this kind of corporate involvement in prayer, this praying together, actually makes a difference in the effectiveness of our prayer. I don't mean to make it sound like it's some kind of magical guarantee that if you pray with other people, you'll always get what you're praying for. I'm I'm not saying that. The Bible doesn't teach us that. But doesn't it sound like James is saying it makes a difference? It makes a difference in prayer when we invite other people in. I think looking at this passage, just gives us a great opportunity to remind you of the blessing of having elders here. He has this specific command. If you're dealing with major sickness, pray with the elders of the church. Now, the passage here seems to assume that a church will have multiple elders, a, a plurality or a group of elders that are linked arm in arm and shepherding God's flock together. You even heard Pastor James as he was uh, talking about his role here. He said, I'm I'm one of the elders. He's one of seven pastors that are here. It's a a beautiful thing to have seven people that are shepherding this church spiritually, that are under the authority of Christ, but caring for the spiritual well-being of this church family. So I hope you see here in what ancient James writes that the leadership structure that you have here at, at bare minimum is biblically sound, but let me encourage you, take advantage of this. As a member of this church, in the best way, take advantage of the fact that you have a team of pastors to shepherd and care for you, because it's not just Pastor James trying to care for everyone alone. There's, there would be too many people here for that, but there's this biblically qualified team of shepherds. Receive their care. When you're walking through some sort of trial or, or suffering or, or sickness or chaos in your life, will you welcome them in to care for you? Will you keep them informed so that they know how to pray for you and how to shepherd you through suffering? Will you invite them in to, in faith, ask God to intervene on your behalf? You see, when you're obedient to a passage such as this, James says, call for the elders of the church. When you're obedient to that, you allow the elders to be obedient to what God has called them to do, what he's appointed them to within the church. You allow them to fulfill the calling God has on them as elders to care for the herding among the flock, and you benefit spiritually. But not only that, let's think of your brothers and sisters in Christ here, uh, the fellow members that are here at Life Church. It says here, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. We have a responsibility as Christians toward one another. We have this responsibility to invite one another into the the weakest and most vulnerable areas of our lives. Here, this example is confessing sin and our brokenness to each other. And then also to pray for each other that we might find healing from whatever that is that we deal with. But the problem is for so many of us, our natural disposition is to hide those things, to to live in the dark, not to invite anyone into it, whether that's church leadership or our brothers and sisters in Christ into those vulnerable places. But when we do that, we miss out on the true fellowship of the church. We miss out on the effectiveness and the power of prayer within our lives. But James shows us here, whether your malady is physical or spiritual, whether it's disease or distress, whether it's sickness or sin, pray. And don't pray alone, but pray with the church. There is literally a spiritual army seated around you right now that is ready and able to pray for you at any time, if you will let them in, if you will let them know what to pray for you, they'll be able to pray for you, and the power of God will be leveraged on your behalf, but you have to let them into your life to do so. Call on one another. Call on your leaders and watch God work powerfully in your life. Now, this openness and vulnerability that's needed to invite the church It brings us to the next principle for effective prayer because these things go hand in hand. Not only do we pray effectively when we pray with the church, but we pray effectively when we walk in repentance. We pray effectively when we walk in repentance. Now, I touched briefly on this in the last point, but I want to develop the thought further. Notice how the healing that we need, it extends beyond physical sickness, but also deals with the spiritual sickness of sin. We see in verse 15, confess your sins to one another And pray for each other so that, so that you may be healed. Notice the confession of sin seems to be this critical component to answered prayer. Confess and pray so that you may be healed. Based on our text, let me ask this question. Do you think that we can expect or presume to receive powerful and life transformative answers to our prayers if we neglect the confession of sin? I think the answer to this is a clear no, because we pray effectively when we walk in repentance. Let's unpack that a little further with some additional scriptures. Think first of the horizontal dimension of your relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7, which we'll read in a moment, it shows us how walking in darkness or in unconfessed and unrepentant sin harms our fellowship with each other. First John 1 John 1.6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, that's Christ, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Do You see how walking in the light, not hiding ourselves, but walking in this transparent, repentant confession is actually the key to our fellowship with one another? And then when that fellowship is there, the door is opened to be able to truly pray with one another for whatever it may be that ails us in our lives. So confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. But Consider further the vertical dimension of our relationship with the Lord. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, this this should be sobering. It shows us this. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save nor is ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. It should be clear from this that hidden, unconfessed sin, it disrupts our relationship with the Lord and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In this way, it hinders our prayer. Think of it kind of like my internet connection. I just switched providers over the last few weeks. I will not name names in case any of you may work for them. Um, but after spending a nice chunk of time getting my new modem and my router set up and a sweet 30 minutes of internet connection, it went out. I was on my phone, and I realized that it looked like I had Wi-Fi, but nothing was working. My Roku stick couldn't connect to the internet, and I couldn't watch Disney Plus And I was like, okay, what's going on with this new internet? And I get on my phone, and I check my Wi-Fi, and I got that dreaded message. Connected. No internet. You've had it before too. You're you're connected, but you're not connected. What do you do in that situation? You go and you do the classic thing, you unplug it, wait a minute, you plug it back in, it reboots, and then it finally comes on, which is luckily what happened for me. It began to work again. But this connected, not connected is kind of what happens when we have unconfessed sin in the life of a believer. Of course, we're connected by faith. That can't be severed. The grace of God supersedes our sin, but When there's unconfessed or unrepentant sin that's in our life, that causes this relational block. We're connected with the Lord, but we're not truly connected. And in that way, our prayers are hindered. We need our fellowship restored with the Lord so that in a clear conscience, we actually can bring every need before the Lord and before one another in prayer. But here's the good news. Just like with your internet modem, you can always reboot. I read from from 1 John a moment ago. Let us not forget 1 John one nine. It's a verse many of you may be familiar with. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Believers, this is the very truth that day after day frees you to keep walking in repentance. Repentance isn't just when we begin the life of faith. That's where it starts. But repentance is day after day, walking in repentance, bringing our sin to him, being progressively freed from it. But your darkest and and your worst and your most egregious sins that you wouldn't want anyone to know, whatever they might be, they don't overpower the blood and the cross of Christ. Jesus went to the cross to pay the just and divine penalty for your sin, but also to free you from it. There's nothing you can hide from God, and there's nothing you have to try to hide from him. And There's nothing you have to try to hide from one another either. Christ's hands are always extended that we might be ever confessing, ever walking in repentance, walking in the light, restored to fellowship with him and to fellowship with one another, praying bold and expectant prayers with a clean conscience. Let me speak to anyone here today who's not yet a believer in Christ. This is available to you as well. Sin is real, and if you're not in relationship with Christ, you are separated from him, and you're in danger of being separated from him eternally. But Christ died and he rose again to offer salvation to anybody who would repent and come to faith in him. You can be saved from the penalty of sin, and you can be freed from the power of sin, purified day after day from, his, from its effects just by walking with him. You can have restored fellowship with God, you can belong to his family, and know that he hears and answers your prayers. You can have the promise of eternal life. So if you're here today and you, you know that you don't yet have that, I just want to encourage you, talk to someone today. Talk to whoever it might be that invited you. Talk to one of the pastors here, Pastor James or one of the other elders. Even come talk to me. Any of us would love to talk to you and, and tell you how you can begin walking with Christ, what it means to place your faith in Him, and to begin finding this freedom in Him day after day, having this promise as your own. Now, all the principles of effective prayer that we've said so far, that we pray in all circumstances, that we pray with the church, and that we pray with repentance, all of those should combine together so that we can fulfill this fourth principle. We pray effectively when we pray with trusting faith. We pray effectively when we pray with trusting faith. Let's look to verses 16 through 18. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Let's double down on verse 16 again. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Here's the question. Who is the righteous person? It's easy to look at the Old Testament and see Elijah. He was a prophet. Of course, he's a righteous person, but is it only... These super saints we sometimes see in the scriptures who are not super saints at all, really. Is it only anointed prophets? Is it even only pastors who are the righteous person? No, it's normal people like you and me who bear the righteousness of Christ by faith. And the prayer of that person who has the righteousness of Christ by faith, their prayers, for if you're a believer, your prayers are powerful and effective. Even where Elijah is mentioned here, he's a an amazing Old Testament prophet, the Lord did many amazing things through him, but he's given as an example here not to separate his status from ours, but to liken him to us. It says here that Elijah was a human being just as we are. So James is saying if he could expect powerful answers to his prayers, we can pray and expect powerful answers to ours as well. But the key is that by, we, by faith, we must have the righteousness of Christ. But if we do, we can pray with faith, knowing that our prayers are powerful and they're effective. This example of Elijah, comes from the Old Testament in 1 Kings 17 and 18. and In that passage, King Ahab was this evil king of Israel, and he had led them into the worship of a false god named Baal. Because of this idolatry, God declared that he was going to bring judgment on the nation of Israel, that he was going to cause a drought for three years, and that one day he would end that drought. How did God end up carrying this out? He accomplished it. He did this work through Elijah's prayers. So Elijah, a mere human just as we are, he became the vehicle through which God carried out his plan. Elijah's prayers, by God's design and according to God's will, exerted power that stopped the rain for three and a half years. And then when it came time, his prayers started it up again. So in faith, Elijah believed what God had said he would do and then he prayed toward that end and according to God's will, then and only then, it happened. It's just the same. Your prayers and mine will often be the vehicle through which God moves and does extraordinary things. Charles Spurgeon was an amazing 19th century preacher. He once said that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. Think of it this way, that God's, and, and omnipotence means just all powerful, right? God has power to do all things. But think of it this way, that God's will is kind of like the brain, right? And then in the human body, the brain sends a signal through the nerve to the muscles that actually accomplish whatever the body is being told to do. So in a sense, God's will and God's arm, God's hand is what accomplishes things. His will decides what to do, and his arm is what accomplishes it, but prayer and I think Spurgeon is right here. Prayer is the nerve, the, the vehicle through which that signal is sent. There are things that God has willed to do, that God is going to do, but it is only going to happen when his people pray for it to happen. Isn't that crazy that God designed it this way? That he is fully sovereign over all things, but he will only work through your prayers There are people in your life who need salvation, that God is going to save, but he's only going to save them once you've prayed. There are circumstances in people's lives or maybe in your life that God is going to change. He's going to do it, but he's only going to do it once someone has prayed and really prayed for it. So pray. Pray with a trusting faith that God will work Pray with trusting faith that your prayers actually do something, that they are powerful and effective, and that God tells you to pray for a reason. No, this doesn't mean that we can manipulate God to do things he otherwise didn't intend to do. God does say no to our prayers sometimes, even if they may seem good to us, but they don't ultimately accord with his will. And we don't have this look behind the curtain where we can know exactly what, will, what God wills to do at any point in time. We don't always know his reasons for doing what he does, but we still pray with faith and a trusting faith that trusts God's power to do anything, to do the impossible in any situation, but also trusts his will to do what is best, even if we don't understand why. Now all that brings us back to this topic of physical healing that James focuses on in this passage. After all, it's the example that he gives us, so we do have to address it. I acknowledge that so far in just providing these broad principles of effective prayer, it might feel like I've skimmed over this topic of physical healing just a bit. You might be sitting there asking, does God still heal today? Should I call the elders to pray over me? Do I use oil? What's that about? What's the deal? So let's deal with it. This is the first question that I imagine might have come to mind for you. Should we follow this procedure today, which James outlines in verses 14 and 15, when we pray for physical healing? The short answer, I I believe, is yes. But to catch us back up, let's read verses 14 and 15 again. I want to reorient us to what James says to do. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now in this, I don't see any indication that uh, in this passage or in the rest of the book of James that this is a command only for a certain time frame, that it was only for the first century. It's not a miracle of healing that's tied specifically to the apostles or a sign and wonder like we saw uh, many times in the book of Acts. It's not about a specific person with a particular gift of healing, potentially like what we see in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. No, it's simply a straightforward teaching about prayer within the church with normal elders, normal church members, and as far as we can see here, I think it ought to be followed today. The sick person calls for the elders, they anoint and pray, and we trust that God can heal. Here's the question, do we follow this for every illness? When you get a cold, do you call the elders to come to your house and pray over you? I don't think so, not in every case. The example that's given here seems to be a case of extreme illness, right? It says that the person calls the elders to themselves, almost as if they can't come to the elders, right? This person may be bedridden. And when it describes their healing, it equates it to being raised up. It's almost as if this person is being brought from the brink of death and being healed in that instance, Certainly, I don't ever want to tell you not to pray about certain things, so ask for prayer at any point in time, but if your elders had to respond just like this to every single illness that ever happened, they'd be really busy guys, right? They probably couldn't show up every time. It seems that this kind of prayer ought to be reserved for cases of severe illness or maybe even injury where a true intervening prayer is needed. And if the person who is ill has faith that I think God may want to heal me, call the elders of the church and ask them to pray, And what about the anointing with oil? That's that's where it might seem a little bit weird to some of us. If I have any essential oils peoples here, they're probably excited about this. Like, oh, let me get you some frankincense and helichrysum. And I only know those because my wife is into essential oils. But it's not really like that. Sorry, oily people. It's probably just olive oil that they're they're using here. But uh, all joking aside, scripturally speaking, uh, oil was often used to symbolize something being set apart. Uh, or being consecrated for a special purpose. It's a symbolic use. It can even be symbolic for being anointed and sealed with the Holy Spirit, which as Christians we know is true of us. So I think in what James is describing here, this is used not for some kind of magical or medicinal purpose, that the oil in itself does anything, but it's a reminder of being set apart to God by the power of the Spirit. And in that reminder, then the elders pray and ask God to do a miracle that only he can do. You might also wonder this, does sin cause sickness? It seems like there's some kind of relation between those two things in this passage, right? Especially in verse 16, it says, confess your sins to one another and pray so that you may be healed. It even talks about if this person is raised up and if they've committed sins, they'll be forgiven. It seems like there's some kind of interaction between sin and sickness. So does sin cause sickness? The short answer I can give is sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends. Job in the Old Testament, if you've read that book, you've seen before that he was tried mightily. He lost everything that he had, all the way down to everything he owned in his life, every relationship that he had. His entire family died, and then he lost his health. But it's made very clear in the book of Job that he committed no sin to cause that. He did nothing to make that come upon himself. Jesus even said when he healed a blind man in John chapter 9, he tells his disciples that this blind man who's been blind since birth, it wasn't his sin that caused this, it wasn't his parents' sin that caused this, but he's blind so that the glory of God might be shown in him. And then Jesus heals him, does a miracle. However, the same book, John chapter 5, he heals a paralytic who's by the pool of Bethesda. And after he heals this guy, he meets him later and he says, Hey, look, see you're well. Go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. It's possible that there was some kind of condition this man had that somehow was related to his sin. 1 Corinthians 11 even, Paul talks about this. He's telling the Corinthian church, Some of you that are here are getting sick, falling ill, and some are dying because of the sin that you're committing. They were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, and they had all kinds of problems within that church. So in those cases, there was some kind of connection between sin and sickness. Also, sin exists in the first place because of original sin, right? But in every case, we should be very careful about ever trying to tie someone's illness that they're going through or any kind of difficulty in their life to sin because it's oftentimes not clear. And oftentimes there's not a direct correlation, so it's something we should be very careful about and know that much suffering, much sickness is simply a symptom of a world that's broken by sin. But finally and most importantly, the question you might be asking here is, is it, is it always God's will to heal? When it says the prayer offered in faith will save the sick person, does it mean that, we should, that it's always going to work just as we hope? And if it doesn't, then that means we did something wrong? I think Scripture shows us elsewhere that it's not always God's will to miraculously heal in every circumstance. And here's just one, I think, very helpful example. The Apostle Paul himself was not healed of his thorn in the flesh, which we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If anybody should have faith for healing, and if if faith could cause us to always get the response that we want, then the Apostle Paul, of all people, should be able to have his sickness taken away, right? Right? But 2 Corinthians 12, he says he prayed three times and the Lord didn't take it away. And the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. This is the same Paul that in Acts chapter 19, his handkerchief touched people and they were healed. This is the same Paul who raised someone from the dead in Acts chapter 20. And when he had a thorn in the flesh, he was not healed of it. And the only reason that we know is that God's grace was sufficient for him. But still, this doesn't negate the fact that we are instructed to pray in faith, believing that God can heal in any circumstance and that He will heal in some if we are willing to ask. So, in faith, we pray. Now, this procedure that James outlines has actually been carried out at this church. And, and you, your church has seen God answer this in a powerful way. And Pastor James shared this with me recently, but there's a member of this church who not long ago received a cancer diagnosis. And this member came to the elders and was prayed for following the pattern of James chapter 5. Lo and behold, when they went back for their next scans, there was no more cancer. No one declared healing of their own authority. No one claimed to have this apostolic gift of healing. No major hoopla. The elders prayed. The sick person called for them to to pray in that situation. And God did a miracle. That's the only way that it can be explained. My own mother-in-law was actually healed of cancer just a few years ago in a very similar way. After a visit to her doctor, uh, they were reviewing several scans and found what they were certain was cancer, and this was her second time with the same type of cancer. She had just gone through chemotherapy treatment over a span of a couple years uh, to, to be treated for this kind of cancer, and then now it was back. But she was prayed for in a James 5 kind of way by her church, And when she went in for a final scan before major procedures, they were planning to remove the mask that was there and begin treatment. They discovered that it was gone. The doctor said, I can't explain this except there's been a miracle. So if you've been praying, it worked. I don't know what you guys did, but it worked. But here's the thing. This was her second bout with cancer. The first time around, we prayed and her church prayed, and there was not a miraculous healing as far as the eye can tell, a very normal process of medical treatment, and the difficulty of that is what she went through. But the second time around, God worked in a different way. And praise the Lord, she's in great health right now. God simply chooses to work differently at different times. What we have to be careful about in all this is that on the flip side of it, submitting ourselves to the Lord's will can become an excuse not to pray. Think about that. We can sanctify our prayerlessness by saying, well, whatever the Lord wills, and then we simply don't pray. A friend of mine, another pastor that's in the Concord area, reflected on this with me recently. Uh, his wife actually just recently completed cancer treatment. It was a battle of several years. Praise the Lord, she is now cancer-free. But they prayed for years for a quick, miraculous healing that did not come. And throughout that process, he shared with me, there were multiple people who told him, well, if you just pray with enough faith, God will heal and take it away in the spot. They kind of had this health and wealth, prosperity type of gospel that God always hear- heals no matter what. And if- Of course we would say that's bad theology. That's not biblical. But this rocked me when I heard him say this. He he said there was a person that came to him and said that and then prayed a bold prayer of faith over his wife. And there was no miraculous healing, but what he said in reflecting on that was that if my good theology causes me to pray less than someone with bad theology, something is wrong. Right? Even if we trust that God is going to do what he's going to do. Even if we know he may sovereignly say no, we should heed that warning and our theology should stir us to pray and to believe that God can intervene in this moment, so we will ask. So instead we pray. When life is good, when life is difficult. Whatever ails us, we pray. We pray in all circumstances. We pray with the church. We pray in repentance. We pray with trusting faith. Friends, this is how we wield the weapon of prayer effectively. This is how our help comes. So might we be those who pray at all times, and as we faithfully and consistently sound the horn of prayer, might we trust God to bring the help that only he can bring? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that this brings to us, to constantly be praying no matter what is going on. We thank you for the challenge this brings to us to pray with faith that you actually do want to do something and there are miracles that you want to accomplish if we will simply come to you and ask. As it said earlier in the book of James, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. It says also that you delight to give good things to your children. Might we believe that? Or might we, all of us as believers, but uh, might Life Church be a place where people? boldly believe you to answer prayers They would pray in all circumstances they would pray together with one another they would pray by walking in repentance and pray with trusting faith that you are good and that you answer prayer we thank you for what you've shown us today change us transform us more into the likeness of your son that we might be obedient to what we've read today we ask this in your name amen